Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey, folks. Let's talk Israel and Palestine. This topic seems to cause a lot of confusion among Christians and non-Christians alike in the Western world. We are taught to stand up for Israel without fail, but I'm no longer convinced that is the route we should be taking. So I invited Daniel Benora on the show, who will give us her perspective as a Christian Palestinian. Buckle up, folks, because Daniel has a lot to say on this topic, and he comes with a wealth of knowledge. Let's go. Yeah. Left, right, left, right, left. We got our marching right, orders, man. Left, right, left, right. We'd rather left, serve God than right, serve Caesar, you left, know me? Daniel, how are you doing? Hey, Craig. I'm doing well. I'm doing okay. It's been tough for the last like uh, four weeks. I have um, I have a number of friends in Gaza that I haven't heard from in a in a bit. Um, four of my friends have lost family members. Um, a friend lost her dad. A friend lost his brother, and another friend lost two of his cousins. And it's been really, it's been really awful. Like just to follow up with what's happening. Um, also, some Christians were killed in our church two, three weeks ago. Eighteen Christians were killed who were they were sheltering in a church in the Orthodox Church in Gaza, and even Christians sheltering in a church. Um, they couldn't escape the onslaught of the Israeli strikes, uh, strikes against the Palestinians. So I'm, I'm okay. It just, but I'm also not okay. Right, like I'm in a, I'm in the U.S. right now in a very privileged, safe space, um, but my heart is in Gaza. My heart is with my my people, my the Palestinians, whether in the Gaza Strip, whether in the West Bank, whether in Jerusalem, whether in Israel proper. So it's been hard. Um, it's been a hard um, season for me. Um, just kind of checking up on on my friends and some of my friends I haven't heard from since the beginning of the attacks, and kind of you you expect the worst. But, you know, uh, we just have to, you know, pray, as we say, like pray for a ceasefire, pray for God's goodness and justice and truth to prevail at the end and pray for the protection of the people of Gaza. So far, I mean, today is November 7th and we're talking about more than 10,000 uh, Gazans have been killed so far. So it's very, it's very heartbreaking to me and to a lot of Palestinians and allies for Palestine and for justice in Palestine and Israel. I saw something yesterday, and I don't, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing what I saw, but it was, it caught me off guard. It was said that Israel's dropped more bombs in the past week or two weeks than the United States did an entire year in, in Afghanistan. Right. Yeah, I saw that as well. And they're they're comparing the size of Afghanistan to the size of Gaza, and if you, if you imagine the amount of, of of bombs that they're dropping just on a small area of Gaza compared to the entire country of Afghanistan. I mean, that's. I can't imagine that the terror that's going through these people, that people, I hope I understand when they listen to this episode is we're not defending Hamas or Israel. We're not, that's not what we're doing. I think a lot, I think you come from it the same way I do that we're standing with people who are caught in the middle of this, that the women and the children, you know, and we're going to talk about blowback as well that it is, as the show goes along too. But I think that's something that people need to kind of understand when it comes to what's happening there. Because as I mentioned in the, in the opener is that, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to Christians mm-hmm. in the in the West with with Palestine and Israel, and I mean I I was very confused about a lot of stuff that I was learning about um, 
like I told you before we started recording, I had always just assumed that there was a nation state of Israel. That's just not true. Yep. Yep. And I've heard this described as war. I've heard this described as genocide. I've heard this described as an occupation. And to me, it sounds like occupation is where it started and now it's turned into a genocide. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in what you're saying, Craig. But yeah, it's um it's a legacy uh of seventy-five years. For many in the West and in the US, uh they wanna pretend that this is this began on October seventh. Like out of the blue, nothing is happening, you know. A wonderful country of Israel, you know, a liberal democracy, you know, the startup nation that is living at peace. And somehow some people, for some reason, do not like Israel. But, you know, for the most part, Israel is doing well and everything, everything is fine. And then October 7th ha- happens and there's just like outcry and shock. Like, what? How could this happen? Why would they attack us? Why do they hate us? But I think that discourse is fundamentally racist. Because it ignores the Palestinians, the the indigenous population of Palestine, of the land, before Israel came to be in 1948. And we have been pushed, Palestinian Christians and, and Muslims, you know, Christians are, are a small minority in the population. But we have been pushed to the background. We're not that significant. It's, we're not that interesting. We don't have anything to say. We don't have a story. We don't have any legitimate qualms. Um, we don't have any hurt or we don't face any oppression or any violence. And uh, and this is something that Israel has done well to convince the West that it's a good country. And 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 even the discourse about what's, what's happening and about Hamas, it continues to be that way. There's no consideration of the context or the history. Neither context or history are, are understood or explained in this. And the discourse, which has been shocking to me, uh, at, at least in the beginning, has saw this as kind of a part of a regional conflict and mostly centering the U.S. Like it's all about the U.S. It's all about U.S. national interests. It's all about Iran and Israel and the U.S. and China. And again, I mean, it's the same racist discourse that that eliminates the Palestinians, that make make makes them less than human, who have nothing to say, have no, no story to tell. And it's all about the U.S., it's all about Israel, it's all about our allies. And it's deeply disturbing. And so when, when we're talking about 10,000 people killed now, I'm going to be shocked. Like, when people listen to this podcast, like, how many people are going to be dead by then, right? Because the numbers are insane. And, you know, mention the bombing and and that what that looks like. But Israel is kind of hell-bent on destroying Palestinians. This is not a war against Gaza. I mean, it's not a war against Hamas. This is a war against all Palestinians, in, in Gaza especially, but also in the West Bank. We have more than 150 Palestinians who have been killed in Gaza, in the West Bank. Also attacks on pal- Palestinian citizens of Israel, or what Israel calls Arab Israelis. Um, and here Israel is not looking for it's not looking for justice. It's not looking to, you know, defend or like this. This this kind of this language of self-defense and proportionality is super problematic because this is not self-defense when you are aiming for destruction and not accuracy. When you have genocidal language coming out from from ministers in the in the government, from Bibi Netanyahu himself, also how he used the the Bible to compare the Palestinians to the Amalekites which in the Bible were ethnically cleansed, where there's like clear commandments about killing children and men and women and destroying t- trees and so on and so forth. And that's genocidal language, whether in the political discourse, 
you see it from the politicians you know finish them off or give them hell this is like jordan peterson or like haley haley who's running for uh, for the president uh, nikki haley or anyone or, or anyone else this kind of genocidal language and if you're just gonna take that person the american or the israeli and you switch them with like a muslim they become the terrorists but if christians are saying it's making this gen genocidal racist language oh yeah no that's totally fine yeah that makes sense let's kill them all yeah Palestinians, yeah. Well, and we can talk about terrorism and how this kind of term has been used to dehumanize all Palestinians, not just Hamas, but also Hamas, uh, because they are a terrorist group, you know, because they did what they did. Therefore, let's let's kill them all without due process, without reflection, without trying to understand what's happening. And it's super, super problematic. And this is this is for the Palestinians, like we've in many ways we have, we're sh I'm like all of us are just traumatized and shocked at the amount of like destruction and death and and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza there's no electricity no water no food no medical supplies um the UN described this a few days ago that the Gaza strip has become a graveyard for children and and there's a lot to say about what Gaza looked like even before um the beginning of this war but yeah, the amount of destruction, the disregard for the Palestinian life, for the Palestinian dignity, for the humanity of all Palestinians has been like abhorrent and, and really, really vile. And especially when the Bible has been used and continues to be used to justify to justify all of this. Yeah, it's um it's something that's so disturbing to me now. It, the way I the way I look at this situation now, and I, I don't really know I don't I hate to call it a situation because it's more than just a situation. And and please feel free to correct me as we go along, because like I said, my ignorance on this topic is pretty, pretty vast. So if I say something that sounds offensive or whatever, please correct me, because like I said, I don't I'm going by my old way of thinking and, and trying to work my way out of that. And before we get too far, I'd still like for you to just give us a little background yourself, because and you, you mentioned something about terrorism. And anybody listening that's familiar with the Bad Roman podcast, I've, I've often said that the United States government is a terrorist organization, maybe one of the largest terrorist organizations this world's ever seen. And now I look at is the Israeli government the same way. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just to call Hamas a terrorist organization, I'm hearing these conversations in the break room at work, and I'm, I'm grateful. Of, there's a guy I work with. He, he was born in Syria. His family lives in Turkey, but he understands a lot of what's going on there. So I've been able to kind of sit down in the break room and have conversations with him. And he's explaining to me what's going on there, what Gaza is. Like, I just assumed, I just, I, was, I didn't understand what Gaza was. And he was explaining to me, like, Hamas is like a, when we think of, like, Republicans and Democrats, they're just another political party. And I don't know if he if he's accurate when he says that. Maybe you can kind of clarify that as we go along as well, too. But before we get too far ahead, just let folks know a little bit about yourself, you know, because you were born in, Born in Jerusalem, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, raised in Bethlehem, so that's kind of interesting. To, it's going to be interesting to the listeners as well. So why don't you why don't you uh, flex a little bit and tell us a little about yourself, and then <laughs> then we'll get into the topic. Right. Yeah. So I was born in Jerusalem. Uh, my family is from Bethlehem. It's not from Bethlehem, the city itself. It's from we are my family, the Banura family, is from the the town of Beit Sahur, uh, which is just east of um, Bethlehem, a small town. In biblical terms, Beit Sahur, my hometown, is the shepherd's field. But like in, in how we think about the shepherd's field, we think it's just like a suburb of, of Bethlehem. But it's a, right now it's a different town. It's basically the farmland of Bethlehem that over time became its own village and then city um, and so on and so forth. 
but uh, my family is from Beit Sahur. We, the Banura family, I, I can at least trace my genealogy as a Banura for for 13 generations of Palestinians who have been living in Beit Sahur in Bethlehem for that long. Palestinian, Christian, and Arab. I speak Arabic as my my mother's tongue. And in many ways, that that connects me to Arabs throughout the Middle East and North Africa. But, but being Palestinian is also very distinct, just like being an American who speaks English is very different from a, an Australian who speaks English, right? Or an, a, Brit, a Brit who speaks English. So like the language is, is something that we connect on linguistically, but not culturally or, or nationally or so on. But so I'm, I speak Arabic uh, as, as a Christian, and I can talk about my Christian identity, but as a Palestinian, the people of the land who have historically lived in the land for gener- generations and generations, like I said, 13 generations for my family, and my family is an insignificant kind of small family. But Palestinians are the people of the land that called Palestine home, the, the area between the river and the sea as, as their home. And that includes mostly Muslims, historically speaking at least, and also Christians, and also a small minority of Palestinian Jews who continuously lived in the land um, alongside Muslims and, and Christians, of course, and also some other minorities like Samaritans, like the Druze, um, Baha'is, and, and other kind of small religious and ethnic minorities that, you know, called Palestine home. Uh, Christian, the Christian minority that I belong to, so I Christians right now in well, depending what area, what geography you want to think about, but in the whole land, Christians are five percent of the um, of the population. I think even less now. In the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which is you know the Palestinian territories, they're down to one percent, and a large number of Christians, whether for natural reasons, for like low birth rates or for immigration and so on, and especially due to the political and economic reality, many of them opted out. And there's like a massive kind of brain drain of Palestinian Christians because of their connections to the West, um, mostly go to private Christian schools, which give them access to many languages, English or what have you. And so a lot, a lot of them kind of have that mobility to migrate and move out. Uh, my family is historically Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and that's kind of the original, if you will, um, faith in Palestine and Syria and Lebanon and Jordan. But my immediate family is actually evangelical. So my dad is a Baptist pastor. So I grew up as a pastor's kid. A few members of my family are now evangelical. I kind of moved away from from Baptist, defining myself as Baptist or evangelical. I still kind of adhere to some evangelical thinking and uh, but I kind of see myself kind of moving beyond those labels and following Christ uh, and the way of Christ uh, that is more important to me than than the title itself. Attended an, a, a Lutheran church uh, in Palestine before I came to the U.S., and now I go to what is called a post-evangelical church in the U.S. I'm right now in the U.S. I am finishing my Ph.D. studies at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. I work on, I'm in the theology department. I work on late antique history and the rise of Islam in relation to Christianity. So unrelated to a topic tonight. And then my Palestinian identity as a Christian kind of play a role in how I think about the world and especially about what's happening today. And the Palestinian voice I mentioned has been like silenced and ignored for the for the most part, especially in the West, especially in the US. 
which is also confusing and frustrating, but also Christian Palestinians who are a small minority have gone through a lot, have been in the land for 2,000 years, mostly ignored. And, you know, people are so confused when we talk about, yeah, we, we are Christian Palestinians. And the first thing they ask us is like, when did you convert? Or, you know, shouldn't you be Muslim? <laughs> uh, and it's just like that level of ignorance and apathy and is insane to me. Uh, but there's a there's a lot to say about the legacy of Eastern Christianity and Palestinian Christianity. But yeah, that's in a nutshell, kind of my identity and my background. Well, it's interesting you said that. Is when they want to know when you converted. This is how far the ignorance goes. Even where my ignorance used to be, for some reason, Christians in the West are a, a surprised to hear that there's Christian Palestinians. Like there's all that for some reason there's this assumption that they're all Muslims. Right. And that's not true. Yeah. You know, so when Israel's attacking Gaza, they're 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 attacking Christians, and you got Christians in the West that are celebrating this and supporting Israel killing other Christians. I the the mental gymnastics that has to go around to try to get around this stuff with people these days is so mind boggling to me. Because you, it, it's like you get stuck in the mud and you get stuck in this way of thinking that you can't get past because your pastor's telling you this. And I'm telling you, man, I used to be that way because my pastor was telling me this back, back in Israel. And this is how far my ignorance was, is I believed, and I don't remember where those passages in the Bible, but it said that those who um, protect Israel will be blessed. And I don't know if you're familiar with what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed, right? When I read that and back in my old way of thinking, I was like, well, God created the United States to protect Israel. Right. <laughs> that's that's what I used to believe. Right. And I've talked about that on the show before. I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe that God created any nation state, honestly. But I think that's a lot of what's going on in the church. And I, I, when messaging you, I wanted to talk about corporate media propaganda because we're seeing a lot of that, especially if you're spending too much time watching Fox News. And they're talking about all this garbage, calling all these calling people terrorists, and not recognizing that Israel's a terrorist organization. And you got people in the middle of this that are be, that are caught and stuck in the middle of this and being slaughtered by the tens of thousands. And you got people, you got Christians celebrating it. Mm -hmm. This has got to stop. And this is why I'm happy you're on the show today because I'm, I'm hoping that this conversation can get shared by everybody that listens to people that need to hear this conversation because it's there's a lot of ignorance in the church. Right. And I think it starts behind the pulpit. And I think it starts behind corporate media as well. And I think they're all kind of in cahoots at some point together too with this. And there's maybe the pastors are confused. I don't I don't know. But it comes back like you said your your dad's a, ba a Baptist preacher. My time spent in the in the Southern Baptist Church I believed in disp dispensationalism. I thought everybody believed that, that there was going to be a rapture. And, you know, I used to print newspapers and I watched everything going on in Israel. And I was just waiting to see that Jesus was returned and we're going to, the Antichrist was going to be revealed and all this garbage that we're taught with dispensationalism. I think that's a huge problem too, when it comes to what's going on with how people believe Israel should be defended at all costs when it comes to Palestine. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, Craig. But I'll I'll get to one of the main points you mentioned, which is you know this phenomenon where Palestinian Christians or Christians in the Middle East are are not part of how people think about the Middle East. I mean, part of it is part of it is ignorance, of course, and I think it's even more devious and more sinister than that. It's part, I think, of. Um, also, to speak about racism again, of this colonial mentality of racism, we are the Christians. We, the white white folks from Europe and by extension the U.S., we are the Christians. We are the good guys. 
and and Muslims are the bad guys. And there's a lot to say about all the history of all of that and colonialism. It's a phenomenon called Orientalism. Edward Said, uh, an American Palestinian scholar at Columbia, wrote this the, the basically the book on on Orientalism, which is basically ex, 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 exposes the just the very harmful bigoted attitude towards Muslims and Arabs. And part of that colonial mentality is to give us stere- like give these general stereotypes about that people, th- those who are different than you who, if you are a, a white Christian. So h- how do you want to paint the Middle East? You paint the Middle East as backwards, as as Muslim, as uncivilized, as savage, as violent, and you name it. But then you have to maintain that image, like you have to maintain that stereotype that the Middle East is violent and it's backwards. And you hear politicians when you talk about like even the insurrection in January 5th, and they hear this happen all the time, like this doesn't even happen in the in, in the third world, you know, because we are the good civilized people, but those savages only exist in the third world. And by the third world, it Basically, it's anyone who's not the West or is not Russia is a third world. So Africa, Asia, you know, these are the backwards people. So when we come and say, hey, we actually are are more diverse and we have actually have a lot of culture and history and, and music and philosophy and theology coming from the East, from the Middle East, we're actually a very multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multilingual society. Uh, the majority are Muslims. Yeah, I mean, that's a fact. But they have so many different uh, religious minorities and uh, ethnicities and languages. But in our mind, the Western mind, these are just the backwards Arab Muslims. And there's no nuance and there's no context. And and that's kind of, I think that's a legacy of colonialism that still impacts the modern Western mind. And and I think it's fundamentally driven by a racist impulse to see yourself as better than the other. We cannot look at nuance. We cannot look at diversity. We're the good guys, ergo, therefore, they are the bad guys. And how do we define the bad guys? The bad guy is the Muslim or the Arab. Uh, and so that the discourse about we need to support Israel, well, we are the good guys. We have an interest in supporting Israel for whatever political or theological reasons. And you mentioned dispensationalism. So they're the good guys. We're the good guys. Anyone who opposes us, the good guys, by definition, is the bad guy. But then Palestinian Christians or others enter into the into the room. It's like, what about us guys? You know, like how do you fit us in that binary, fundamentally racist discourse? We don't really fit. And and that's kind of where, you know, Craig, you're doing this through the podcast and where people have to do with, you know, their due diligence and actually move away from these binary, unhelpful, quasi-racist uh, ways of thinking and actually try to embrace complexity and, and nuance in the way we think about anyone who's different from you. Well, yeah, and, I, and I th- I'm convinced that Sean Hannity thinks that Jesus has blue eyes and blonde hair, too. <laughs> right, yeah. You yeah, know yeah. what I'm saying? Right, yeah. yeah. Just to listen to him, and man, I, I, don't, I don't spend hardly any time watching corporate media, but it's on in the break room, and that's the only time I do see it. And he's, he's always on when I go to my first break at work. And just to just to see the stuff coming out of his mouth, man, it's just it's pretty it's pretty gross. And there's a lot of the problem is there's a lot of people that think that way. And it's interesting to sit in that break room and listen to the conversations going on around. But what's about what's being said on that TV, because you got one side of the bunch thinking that 
Israel's right and should defend themselves. And then you got another side, like I told you, my friend, my coworker um, who was born in Syria, he's telling me the stuff he's saying, you should see the looks on some of these folks' face faces when he's talking because they've never heard this from anybody. You can tell they've never heard what he's saying from Sean Hannity, obviously, when he's talking and explaining Gaza and the West Bank and explaining that it's an occupation that it's always Palestine. So it's Palestine. It's that Israel is not part of Palestine. It's an occupation. And just to hear him talk about that, it really throws these guys for a loop. And I like listening to him talk and watching him explain this to them because I can learn something from him. We have a new guy. He's from Africa. He's Muslim. Didn't know he was Muslim, but he mentioned it. But he was sitting there and he's he's watching this stuff on the news. He goes, this is garbage. <laughs> This is garbage. This is not, none of this is true, what they're telling you. And I think, I, I can't stand corporate media. And I think that they're, they're, besides what happens behind the pulpit, I think the corporate media is the biggest, biggest problem right now because people latch onto it. I, I like to see that people are moving away from it and starting to listen to more podcasts. Yeah. Cause they're kind of sick of it too. But you still got those, those old hats that are going to sit there and, and, and want to watch the same garbage they've been watching. I mean, I used to watch Fox News religiously, you know, just, it, but you probably wouldn't understand that or know that because of the way my old way of thinking was. It'll corrupt your mind if you sit there and take that as religion and take it as, as your faith. That it's very bad for you to sit there and listen to that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and this is kind of evident in also how the media has been reporting on on the the, the last four four weeks. Um it's been abhorrent to see this warmongering disregard for the humanity of the Palestinians whitewashing their suffering and even even like and you're focusing on the media and I get it I mean the media is very complicit in this but it also goes beyond this it goes back to the president and his attitudes uh, like I mean obviously you know un, un, unequivocal unconditional unwavering support for Israel no matter what and there's a there's a very disturbing unhealthy really toxic relationship between the US and Israel and kind of the influence of the Israel lobby in in American politics and APAC, basically the biggest, largest, the largest lobby group in the U.S. Uh, and all the money they're funneling into uh, Congress to support candidates and Congress people to uh, basically create this, just basically this gang of pro-Israel kind of Congress people who support Israel no matter what. So it begins from Biden, who is a, you know, famously says that he's a Zionist, uh, goes to the whole political kind of hierarchy. Demo- most Democrats, all of Republicans, le- really haven't heard anyone today who's more who's nuanced and who cares about uh, uh, the humanitarian condition or questioning uh, what Israel is doing. Only hear some voices in the Democratic Party, like Bernie Sanders. Who's like, well, hey, like we need to put conditions on Israel how it uses our weapons. People like Rashida Tlaib, who, Rashida Tlaib, who's a Palestinian American congressperson in, in the House, who's been very critical, and some other people from the Progressive Caucus, like uh, Cory Bush and AOC, and others who have been very vocal and emphasizing that we need to talk about the history and the context. We need to understand that the, what's happening right now is a genocide, and war crimes are being committed, and um, the stuff that you're hearing from the news is, is insane, but only these are who are considered, you know, the far left. The far left in American politics are saying this stuff, but for the most part, it starts with the president, with Congress, and 
and then makes it way makes its way into the media as well. And also, Craig, you mentioned this as well: the church, your pastors, and I don't know if it's pastors who are influenced by the media or if it's the the seminaries and the churches that teach these things and dispensationalism, which goes beyond before the media, right? And how that thinking, that Zionist thinking, that you need to bless Israel to be blessed, you need to support Israel no matter what, so that Christ would come back, right? And that predates the corporate media in the U.S. today. So there's like this is a multi-layered, just cesspool of of warmongering, of violence, of whitewashing oppression that is, you know, starts from the president and goes all the way down. Well, I'm glad you brought up the the, the president and and some of these folks in Congress too, because it's another thing that that I've noticed. You know, a lot of I know a lot of people that are on the left who are anti-war, but they tend to go silent for some reason when their version of the monster is in, in office. Mm-hmm. And today their version of the monster is Joe Biden. You know, and, the, and the, the folks in Congress who are speaking out against Israel and this war, this attack on, on, on the Palestinians, they're getting blasted. They're getting blasted in the media. They're getting blasted by other politicians. And I'm pretty sure they're getting blasted in the churches too. You know, and then you get you see all these pro-Palestinian uh demonstrations and basically these folks are, are looked upon as supporting terrorism no these folks are supporting the people of palestine that's what they're doing there's nothing wrong with that somebody needs to start talking about it because if you if if, <laughs> if we're just bombarded with bombarded with the same garbage that we hear from the media from the president from from the churches and nothing else is being said. That's just what everybody's going to believe. People need to start being loud about it. I have no problem with these protests at all. And I'm not saying that they're defending Hamas. I think they're defending the children and the women that are right. getting slaughtered yeah. by yeah. Israel. Surely we can have some nuance. Like surely you can say, I reject Hamas. I think what Hamas did was vile. It's a heinous attack on civilians and so on. And in the same breath, in the same breath, without pausing, without a comma, and I also condemn and reject the death and destruction and the genocide committed against the people in Gaza. Like, surely you can have your, our brains are wired in a way to hold complex ideas. <laughs> you, you'd hope, you know, like you would hope that that's possible, but surely condemning Hamas doesn't have to be Oh, therefore, I'm going to be pro-Israel. I'm going to like kill them all. Or being critical of Israel doesn't mean that you support Hamas. Like it just doesn't, that's not how it works. Like we need to be thoughtful, like as serious thinkers and, and the way we think about the context of all of this. But the reason, again, like I don't want to like overemphasize this, the reason that people, whenever you, they hear Palestinians, you know, demanding justice or the end of the occupation or ceasefire, the reason that they say, well, this is anti-Israel, this is anti-Semitic, it's, it's, it's fundamentally comes from this place where Palestinians do not matter. So when we're saying we need justice for the Palestinians, we need the end of the blockade in Gaza, we need the end of the occupation. I don't know how much, Craig, you want to go into the history of the, the conflict, but it, it began in 47 and 48 when Israel was established and the majority of Palestinians were kicked out. I think it's important, if you don't mind kind of going over that for us, because I think it's important for the listener to understand that how this started, why it's, why it started, and, and how how it's it's being mis- misrepresented today as we speak. Yeah, and I can I can mention some references for people to like, um, you know, look up and, and study their f- fantastic books written by 
by Palestinian historians, by Israeli historians, and by others um, that unpack all of this. But basically, the Palestinians are the indigenous people of the land. Let me see if I can do this in five minutes, right? <laughs> so the Palestinians are the people in the land who have been living there, including Muslims, Christians, and Jews, a small minority of Jews. Zionism began in the late 19th century. Uh, the father of Zionism is a guy called Herzl. Um, and him and some other European Jews believed in this idea of a Jewish national restoration, um, finding themselves for themselves a place to live. This is part of a large anti-Semitic problem, uh, what, what is called the Jewish problem in the West, which is like what to do with the Jews. We don't want the Jews. They killed Jesus, the blood libel, and very nasty anti-Semitic rhetoric. And Jews were like, you know what? We're fed up. We want to have our own homeland that we can live in. Some suggestions were made for them to be in Argentina or some some country in, in, in Africa. Eventually, they settled on Palestine. And then they lobbied heavily the British Empire to help facilitate their migration, their transfer into Palestine. Most of these were secular Jews. Most of them did not really care too much about the idea of the promised land or what have you, but it was a bit convenient for them to pursue Palestine because it's part of a Jewish legacy that they were you know, aware of, not really that they believed in it. Actually, most Jews at the time rejected uh, Zionism because it was seen as, as an idolatry, as a way to replace God. You're replacing the Messiah, who in Jewish thinking is the one who would restore the fortunes of Israel, the king, the Davidic king who, is come, who would come. And Jews, through their Talmud and their teachings, we're expecting the Messiah to come. And whenever the Messiah come, comes, he'll bring him back. But then Zionism say, says, no, we're going to establish our own secular leftist homeland in, in Palestine. And the majority of Jews were like, no, we can't, that doesn't work. Um, but anyway, they were successful in lobbying in, in Britain especially. Now, by 1917, the British mandate was enforced on Palestine. Previously, Palestine was occupied, was controlled by the Ottoman Empire. And then there's something called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where the French and the British divided up the Middle East through these kind of boundary lines they they made up without consulting the indigenous populations of those lands. And, and Britain had control over Jordan, Palestine, Iraq, and other areas. And then in 1917, after so many, after so much lobbying, uh, the Prime Minister of Britain at the time, Lord Balfour, who was a Christian Zionist himself, who was also anti-Semitic, who was also was personally invested in moving Jews out of Europe, sent this letter to the Rothschild, to Lord Rothschild, a wealthy Jewish um, uh, businessman, and he says, and he told him that the gov that her His Majesty's government, the British government, looks favorably for the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And that led to the exodus of many Jews into Palestine in anticipation of their homeland to being established. Come 47, 48, uh, well, the 30s, the Holocaust happens, um, Jews are forced out. Many of them come to Palestine as well, facilitated and aided by the British Empire eventually. And then in 47, Jewish militias uh, start a, basically a campaign of ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. How do you create a Jewish homeland for the Jews while the land is populated by Palestinians? The solution is to transfer and to ethnically cleanse the land. So this is a work of an Israeli historian, Ilan Pape, 
It's called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. It's a well-known book, was published um, a few years back. But he documents, based on declassified uh, documents, the specific efforts by the Jewish militias, terrorist militias, to ethnically cleanse Palestine. By the end of the cleansing and until the Israel was established as a state in May 14th, 1948, and the war that followed after that, 700,000 Palestinians, the majority of the population, was pushed out of Palestine. And they were pushed into refugee camps, whether internally in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. You know, these were not recognized territories then, but they eventually became with a ceasefire agreement. And most of them became refugees in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, mostly in Jordan. And so, and still today, those 700,000 refugees are today um, amount to 5 million refugees, are still refugees in Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, and some in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, kicked out of their homeland and still waiting for the right of return. There's a UN resolution, Resolution 242, that guarantees that Palestinians have a right to return to the land. Connecting this to to Gaza, because we don't have a lot of time here, 70% of the people of Gaza are refugees. So these are first, second, and third generations of refugees who stuck in have been stuck in the Gaza Strip for the last 75 years, waiting to break out of Gaza and go back home. Gaza has been described as a concentration camp. If you like, just look at the circumstances in Gaza before the war, just the abhorrent living conditions, no drinking water, no infrastructure. Unemployment is so super high. Poverty, 60 or 70% of the people live under the poverty line. And just an abhorrent reality. You mentioned the blowback, blowback, Craig. These are refugees who have been living in refugee camps for generations. Are we surprised that the repressed are going to revolt? Are we going? Are we suppressed? Are we surprised that they're going to break out of jail, out of the concentration camp, and and go out and avenge themselves? And we can talk about the killing of Palestinians throughout history. Just to focus on the Gaza Strip for that, just to give a context for Hamas and the attacks. In the last 16 years since the Israeli blockade of the Gaza Strip began, Israel waged four, at least four wars on Gaza, killing thousands of Gazans. In 2014, they killed more than 2,000 people. In 2021, they killed uh, three, 400 Gazans, including women and children, scores of women and children. People talk about today about self-defense, about Israel's right and duty. This is uh, Blinken, right and duty to defend itself. Well, do Palestinians have a right to self-defense as well? Do the repressed have a right to fight, to armed struggle, to fight against their oppression and victimization and dehumanization and oppression or not? Palestinians are not giving the right to self-defense. None of what I'm saying here is a, gives an excuse to Hamas to do what, it's, what, it, what it did, but at least that's the context. That's the way that Hamas thinks, that we've been, object, we've been victims of a brutal occupation and oppression for 75 years. We are not from Gaza. We are from the land. We are from Haifa and Yaffa and all these home and all these lands, and we need to go there. And just the last um, last comment here. I don't know if the audience, your audience exactly, and how they think about the Second Amendment, but the Second Amendment ensures a right that should never be infringed on for Americans to bear arms. And the language of that, and specifically talks about the formation of, I think, of militias and the right to bear arms could never be infringed upon Americans. And I 
I think the Second Amendment is awful, and I completely disagree with it. And theologically, just basic on basic theological kind of understandings. But when you talk with people who believe in the Second Amendment, they're saying, like, I ask them, why do you want to have guns? And they're like, well, guns are the way to protect ourselves from the tyranny of the government. That's how you can make sure that the government would be free, that we would not be terrorized by a tyrant, by a tyrant government, the king or the current government. Hamas, believe it or not, uses the same logic. We're going to form militias to defend ourselves from the tyranny of the government. Now, what they did was they shouldn't have done what they did, and like the way they did it was awful, but it's the same mindset. We're going to formulate militias. We've been terrorized by this government, by a foreign government. This is not our own government. This is not Americans fighting the American government. This is this is Ukrainians fighting Russia, right? Like They came to our land, occupied Crimea, occupied Ukraine, bombed us day and night. We have the right to armed struggle, and we have the right to fight back. And when Israel has been brutalizing and bombing Palestinians and killing us left and right, Hamas are saying, Hamas are part of a section of the population that says, yeah, we cannot stand for this. We would rather die. There's a saying that they use, we'd rather die standing than live on our knees. And and that's a discourse. And then there's like a lot of conversations. Well, is it, you know, like, how do you explain killing civilians and so on? And And we can, I mean, there's, Hamas and others, you know, explain that away. Um, but that's part of the discourse. And if we're not understanding the legacy that of oppression and violence that lead people to armed struggle, to the to this belief that we need to defend ourselves no matter what, and if it if necessary, using weapons to kill and attack and commit horrible crimes against civilians. There's, we're not going to be able to make any progress in the way that we think about Palestine and Israel and the Middle East. And, and that's the context. And again, the context doesn't is not meant to justify or, or explain away, but it, it, we need to be more nuanced in the way that we think about these things. And, and fundamentally to understand that violence begets violence, that oppression begets oppression, that you cannot underestimate a people's desire for freedom. Palestinians, for the most part, are nonviolent people, and Palestinian Christians, especially, we we're, we're committed to creative nonviolent resistance, following the scriptures and following the model of Christ. But, but the belligerence of Israel and the unwavering support from a very belligerent government in the U.S., the unconditional military support, four billion dollars every year from our tax dollars, go to support the Israeli military. And we expect the Palestinians to just cower and like lay down. It's not going to happen. Again, I, I have to keep like emphasizing this because I'm Palestinian. No <laughs> justification for the attacks, but also the U.S. and Israel has justified killing Palestinians left and right. Whether from '48, the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, thousands were were killed, massacres were committed. The last 16 years of blockades and war, uh, blockade and wars on the Palestinians in Gaza. This year, before October 7th, 300 Palestinians were killed in the West Bank, not in Gaza Strip, not where Hamas is, in the, in the West Bank, in where I live, where my family is. 300 Palestinians, including almost 40 children. No Hamas, no blockade. But they're killing Palestinians left and right. No one is talking about the Palestinians, is talking to the Palestinians or about the Palestinians who were killed in the West Bank. But whenever Israelis are killed, 
there are the podcasts, the newscasts, the breaking news in the West. But Palestinians otherwise, they suffer, they die. We don't really pay attention to them. We only pay attention to the Palestinians whenever Israelis are killed. And that shows the inherent, the inherent kind of, again, <laughs> this is like the fourth time I say this, that the racist and very dehumanizing discourse and way of thinking that exists, uh, especially in the U.S. Right. And I think anybody. Right. So I gave you some context about myself and messaging. You know, I grew up born and raised in West Texas. I was that guy, the Second Amendment guy, the gun guy. I was a, I was around guns my entire life. I always I've always they, they don't guns don't bother me. OK. Right. But and, I, and I, I'm not defending Hamas or any, any Palestinian that wants to fight back. And I've heard you talk about this on in other podcasts. You call you, you describe yourself as a raging pacifist. <laughs> right. I consider myself a pacifist now. I used to not be a pacifist. Now, as a pacifist, I can look at what's happening, and nobody should be surprised that these folks are going to try and punch back at some point. Just like you said a while ago, the desire to be free right. is inherent with everybody. Okay? So they... The idea that they can that they're going to just sit by oddly by, I don't I don't condone it, but I get it. Mm-hmm. I understand them wanting to defend themselves, mm-hmm. and 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 whatever that looks like to them, that's what they're going to do. And nobody should be surprised. It's one thing that was so funny to me. I don't know if funny is the right word, but when this when that that Hamas attack, like I told you, I was sitting in the break room, and it says Israel surprised by latest Hamas attack, and I'm like, how can they be surprised? <laughs> Yeah. At this point, because they uh, Israel's been attacking them, from my understanding, attacking them for years. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be surprised by this. And it reminded me, and I don't know if this is a bad comparison or not, but it reminded me of like how Americans were surprised by 9-11. The American government has been meddling in other people's business for years. At some point, they're going to fight back, okay? I don't know if it's a bad comparison or not. If it is, please correct me. But at the same time, I understand wanting to defend yourself, your family. I mean, if, if, if people were, if they were marching down our neighborhoods and from what I understand is Israel is moving Palestinians out of their homes and moving Israelis into these people's homes and leaving them homeless. Mm-hmm. If that was happening in my neighborhood yeah, 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 to my family and my friends, I can guarantee you, I don't think I'm going to sit idly by yeah. and I'm a, and, I, and I'm a pacifist. Now, if that means me losing my life, I'm not going to sit there and take it though. My understanding of pacifism may be different than yours. Is like I'm not. My pacifism goes to where I'm just not willing to kill somebody back. Mm-hmm. Even if that means me losing my life. Now that does not mean I'm not going to defend myself or my family. People take pacifism the wrong way and thinking that we're not just going to. I mean, if you got kids, I know pacifists that have kids. Mm-hmm. I do not believe that they're going to sit there and watch your kids be slaughtered without trying to get in between it. You know what I'm saying? So I, I don't know how you when you call yourself a raging pacifist, that really caught my attention because now I am. Yeah, I, I am a pacifist, too. And it's something that's very important to me. It's hard to describe <laughs> to some people because you think you're just not defending yourself. And I just don't think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's unpack that before we do. Before we do, you brought up the issue of um, if someone comes and attacks me and I don't know what I'm going to do and I'm going to I'm going to do defend myself like if. If Israel in the last 16 years, we know this, waged five wars on, on, on Gaza, and we know that thousands of, of Palestinians in Gaza were killed. So these include children, mothers, 
fathers, cousins, what have you. So if I'm, if if my if my wife was killed, you know, or my son was killed, or my my nephew, or my my fiance, or my was killed, why wouldn't like why wouldn't I want to join Hamas? <laughs> like, do we think that Israel by killing ten thousand people, people are not gonna like try to avenge themselves? and avenge their loved ones. And like you see the pictures, when you talk about 4,000 children, why wouldn't all these fathers pick up arms against the Israel? So is this the way you actually eradicate Hamas? Like, is this the way that you eradicate violence? No, it continues the cycle. Israel likes to paint this as this is self-defense and you know what, all the language they use about the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. But you're not solving the issue. One, you're ignoring the core issue that leads to Hamas, which is oppression, the occupation, a reality that has been described, Craig, by every reputable human rights organization in the world, whether it's Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, an Israeli, two Israeli um, human rights organizations, including Beit Salem, that this is a system of apartheid like you had in South Africa. It's very comparable. It's different, obviously, but it's very comparable to apartheid in South Africa. Of course, there's going to be uh, violence. Of course, in, a, in response to apartheid, there's going to be violence. Now, speaking about pacifism and what I mean, yeah, I think fundamentally it goes back to how I understand Jesus and how do I, how I understand the kingdom of God. And I think there is a clear model that is given to me in the scriptures about the kingdom of God that is counter to the way of the world. The way of Hamas and the way of Israel are the same. These are the ways of war and vengeance and wrath. Um, and it's counter to the, to the way of the gospel, to the way of the kingdom of, of Christ. And the model of Christ on the cross is someone who did not try to escape, he did not try to fight back. He, he knew that his day was, would come and he accepted it and he went to the cross and cried, God, God, why have you forsaken me? But then through that attitude, the kingdom of God came on earth because of Christ's uh, work on the cross. And there's this model of, of justice and peace that comes and we can talk about how do we do, have, what's the solution? And fundamentally, the, the solution is based on, on, on ensuring justice for the Palestinians and for the Israelis, a justice that leads to peace. And it is the justice of God that fundamentally shows itself on the cross. And through that justice, peace and reconciliation follow. Peace between God and humanity and humanity among itself. So th that's kind of the model that I, I adopt of this kind of radical pacifism that does not inflict violence, but actually receives violence. Uh, and that's the way of the kingdom. And that's the radical way of Jesus when he says in the Sermon on the Mount, to love your enemies and to love your neighbors as yourself. How do you love your enemy if you're killing the enemy? Like those do not go hand in hand. And and there's a radical message in the gospel. And I'm sorry, like Jesus was a radical. Jesus, the way of the gospel is counterintuitive, upside down, irrational to the ways of the world, how Israel thinks and how the US thinks and how Hamas thinks. I'm stuck with it. I mean, I just... When I read the Sermon on the Mount, there's nothing else I can, there's no conclusion I can reach, but that my commandment, all of the law is summarized in one, loving God and loving my neighbor. And for me as a Palestinian, I'm commanded to love my neighbor, which is my Muslim or my Jewish neighbor, but also love my enemy, who was the Israeli neighbor. 
and I there's no thing there's nothing I can do. I am like I'm shackled by this by this love that I have to have for people, and I have to fight against every impulse of anger, of vengeance, of of violence that I have in me. And and that's the challenge of following after Christ, I think, in the way of the gospel. Now you mentioned some stuff about well, what if people come and attack me, and you know, being slapped on the one cheek. We the way we think about this as Palestinians, it's not pacifism in the sense of come and beat me up. I have no, I'm not going to stand for myself. We see the example of Jesus when he talks about turning the other cheek. I don't know how you read this, Craig, but when you when you turn the other cheek, you're not saying you're not telling the person to to beat you up. You're telling the person to think about what that person is doing. You're in a way you're embarrassing that person. He expects you to cower down and fall on your knees to be beaten up and just kind of surrender. But when you lift your head up and you turn the other cheek, you're challenging him. When Jesus is being attacked and mocked at um, in the questioning on in, uh, on Passion Week, he asks people. He asks them, "Why do you why do you why do you beat me? Why do you attack me?" He's challenging people to think about their biases and their impulses and their anger. So this is not passive. Beat me up. I'm a I'm a whipping boy. It's saying, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to see the humanity in you, and I'm going to challenge you to discover that humanity. So that's, for me, what pacifism does. It's a subversive response to violence that doesn't respond to violence by violence, but tries to transform violence by emphasizing the humanity of the others, of the, of the violent, of the, of the attacker, of the oppressor. Um, Palestinian Christians have released a document, and I would love for you and others to read it. It's called uh, Kairos Palestine, K-A-I-R-O-S, Palestine, and it and it kind of gives the Palestinian kind of understanding of of our reality and how to re- how do we respond to it from our faith. And Kairos makes this document that the duty of the Christian is to resist. Resistance is the duty of the Christian, but it is not resistance with the logic of of violence but it's with a logic of love that finds creative ways to, to affirm the humanity of the oppressed and the oppressor. Um, so like my, my raging pacifism is, is an attitude that is devoted to restoring the image of God in, in both people, in the violent person who, who denied the image of God and likeness in themselves by, by adopting violence as a way of living by by practicing violence and by restoring the humanity, the image of God in the oppressed who has been dehumanized and been victimized um, by the oppressor. So that's what it that's what kind of this is a theological theoretical backing. Now what does that look like in the Palestinian context? Um, it's this unwavering uh, adherence to nonviolent resistance, whether it's in our in, in being on podcasts right, right now, or like writing, or speaking, or diplom- diplomacy, or interfaith dialogue, or, you know, boycotting products, um, you know, what is called BDS, the Boycott Divestments and Sanctions Movement, that kind of is inspired by the civil rights movement in the U.S., boycotting buses, and, and what's happening in, for example, you saw this in the 60s in the U.S., or what happened in South Africa and India, finding creative ways to destabilize the power and then the economy of oppression and violence, and in doing so, challenging the oppressor to like be aware of their bigotry and their racism, and hopefully lead them to that process of transformation, to let go of their weapons and forming their weapons into their swords, into plowshares, and kind of bringing about that prophetic imagination about 
the kingdom of God of truth and peace and justice for all people. So that's kind of where we begin to think about it. This is not a discourse, Craig, that is common or familiar, could be very offensive to people in the West, especially in the US, in the a country where has there are more guns than there are people. But I think um, the way of the US is not the way of the gospel. The way of the US is the way of the empire, the way of colonialism, the way of oppression, the way of that maximizes profit over people, of a military in the, um, industry complex, of of adventurism, of racism that is kind of informs and in, in the DNA of the American political analysis and practice. But that's not the way of, of the cross. That's not the way of Jesus. And we need to challenge that. And I think you do that well, it seems, at your podcast, uh, Craig. And, and the, we have to do more work on this, especially to examine how, how we use our theology to dehumanize uh, and whitewash uh, oppression of people, of people who are beloved by God, who are made in his image and likeness. And we need to fight and to advocate and stand up for justice and truth, especially for the oppressed. And there's a, a theological conversation about the what is called the preferential option for the poor. And it's the understanding that God takes sides, that God's on the side of the oppressed. And if you read this through the text, this is a, a very common, this is a, uh, a trope or like an idea that is found throughout the, the, the Bible from beginning until the end, from the death of Abel until Christ and the church, that God is fundamentally cares about the oppressed, the weak, the ch children, the women, the minorities, the handicapped, the Samaritans, these uh, the ones who are rejected and abused by, by, by society, these are the ones that God favors. And you see this in the Old Testament in how it, how it speaks about freedom and how it speaks about being aliens and about um, the strangers in your midst, talking about the widow and the poor. You see this in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem, who hung out, who hung out with the tax collectors and the, you know, those who are shunned by society, and going all the way to the first church that challenged the authorities and the empire. And that's kind of that's the model that we need to be following. And I think I don't think the U.S. as an empire, as based on power and domination, and Profit is the way that it thinks about these things. And the U.S. has to reckon with this. And I think there's judgment. If you talk about judgment, there's judgment on those who reject this way of the gospel. And our call to Christians in the West to adopt this way of violence and power and domination is to repent, like to follow, to move away from these ways of violence and death and 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 warmongering and follow in the ways of Christ, in the ways of, of love and of mercy in the way of the cross. And there's so much work that needs to be done, Craig. We mentioned this about churches, about politicians, about the media. There's a lot of repentance, I think, that churches and Christians in the West need to do right now. I agree. You know, it reminds me of a conversation I was having with somebody the other day, too, and how he was surprised at how Hamas was able to attack Israel the way it did. And maybe, you know, maybe that's God uh, judging his own people. And I said, you know, man, I said, I don't see... In war, I don't see God in any of that. I said, that's all evil. That's all satanic to me. You know, you mentioned the empire of the United States, the empire. You know, that's yeah. We see very clearly in scripture who backs the kingdoms of this world. Mm -hmm. And Jesus had no interest in it when he was offered that power by Satan. You know, so when I see what's going on, I don't see, um, I don't see God. I see, I see evil. 
Okay. And now I'm not saying that God can't show up and fix things. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't think that he's had anything to do with that. I think there's a big mess, misrepresentation of God in, the, in scriptures or how people uh, read scripture when it comes to war and stuff. I just don't. Because when you see, when Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There was nothing about the life of Jesus that would suggest Hamas attacking Israel or vice versa. Okay. Yeah. This is a very problematic theology. I mean, there's, we, I mean, we have to have a conversation about this stuff and um, this idea of that God is punishing people by killing them. So you think that killing babies and women is God, like what, what understanding of God is this? This is a a bloodthirsty God. (laughs) Like he's punishes, like he punishes the living by killing others. Like you pay, kill some people to punish the rest. Like, is this how God works? Like, it's such a weird theology. But also, like you said, the the, the phrase that your friend used is that God is punishing His people. So the assumption is that God has a people who are the Jewish people. Yeah. And then, but I thought Christians are God's people. Yeah. <laughs> but then all of humanity is God's people. So like, what what are, what are we saying? Like, do you saying that Jews who reject Jesus are God's people? Yeah. <laughs> because of their DNA. Um, like it's so weird to me like to to think about it and like we can talk about the Bible and how we should be reading the Bible but the people of God are those who follow after God those those who live in in the way of God in the way of mercy and goodness not those who have a certain bloodline or or who are circumcised and and Jesus challenges this all the way he he would go to the, the Pharisees the Jewish leaders and he would tell them you are the sons of the devil but wait but there are God's chosen people. No, it's not about your DNA. It's it's about you. Do you follow like do you follow after that way of God? Um, and he challenged all the authority at his time, the Jewish authority. Come go to if you go to jump to Paul to Galatians three. It says that Abraham believed and it was considered to him as righteousness, not because of his circumcision. Actually, he was you know he was not a Jew at the time, right? Jews Jews are the products, the sons of Judah, the son of Jacob, who is Israel. Um, the son of Jacob, Isaac, and, and Abraham. So, but then he says, faith is, you are considered in the people of God because of your faith, not because of your genealogy. Righteousness comes to you through faith, not through your DNA. And Paul rejects this all the way. And then in Galatians 3.16 and later on, he says that those of faith are, are, are of righteousness, and it's not those of the, the blood. And he says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, man and woman, all are one in Christ Jesus. There's genealogy, actually, Paul, in somewhere else, he says, do not follow foolish talks about genealogies. It doesn't really matter. What matters is your faith. And if you belong to Christ, I think 329, you are the offspring of Abraham and, and heirs according to the promise. Your sonship, your belonging to the family of God is not because of your DNA. It's because if you believe in Christ, then you are heirs according to the promise. So Paul and Jesus move us away from this very disturbing, limited way of thinking that God is has favoritism, that he has one specific people over others. There is no distinction between people. And, and God's love and God's goodness is offered to everyone, not to a special treatment of people vis-a-vis others. This is not the way of the gospel. This is a very very bad reading of the Old Testament that ignores Jesus, ignores the, what we see in Paul, and goes to Deuteronomy, goes to Ezekiel, and like, and then hop over Jesus as he doesn't exist, as there's nothing that happened with the Jesus event. 
and we just read the text out of context and without Christ. And this is like a very problematic way that you want to read the Old Testament and ignore Jesus. Like this is like like heretical. Like we do not understand our faith without Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. Yeah, you know, like no king but Christ, right? Like I have, I see this banner behind you. Like Christ is the way who like, he's the way that explains everything to us. In Him, we find our yes. And amen. In him, everything is fulfilled. And for you, for Christians to say these are God's chosen people, because I read this in Deuteronomy or in, in Ezekiel, you're saying that Christ doesn't matter, that Christ is not significant to the way I think about, about this stuff. And this is a huge problem. Um, so there's a lot of this, like there's a lot of like, sorry, just baggage and, and really garbage theology that influences the way that we think about these things. And and force us to turn a blind, a blind eye to oppression. If these are God's chosen people, then whatever they do is okay because they're God's chosen people. We need to support God's chosen people, even though they're choosing the way of vengeance and death and killing 10,000 people, 4,000 children. These are God's chosen people, and we are so blind in, in supporting them no matter what. This is where this very horrible theology leads to, to justifying death and, and violence and, and a genocide in Gaza. 100%. You know, when he, we saw Jesus coming, when he came back, you could, you could see him trying to correct all this bad theology. And now even in 2023, we're still trying to correct bad theology. He opens the book on the road to, road to Emmaus, and he says, he opens the, the scriptures, and he says, all of these, all of what you're write, reading here on the way to Emmaus are all about me, all testify to me. Yeah. And it says, whatever promises were made, Paul says, they find their yes, their amen, their finality in Jesus. And we're still like the blind people on the road to Emmaus. We do not know how to read the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so, so problematic, so problematic. And it causes all a lot of the stuff that we're seeing yep, yep, exactly. in Israel and in Palestine right and, now. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah. And it is Christians. It is Christians fundamentally. You have the left, the progressive left who are saying, no, human rights and dignity and ceasefire and humanitarian pause or ceasefire. But it is the Christians who are saying, no, kill them all, kill them all, no ceasefire. And you see people like Russell Moore, like David French, who's like, yes, all the way, you know? And these are like, so, you know, supposedly good people, ethicists, and who care about these things. But, you know, and this is coming from the pulpit, like you said in the beginning of the podcast, coming from influential evangelical voices and others who are so, like, you know, following the way of the world. Like, if a Christian says that, and then a non-Christian says that, the same thing like how are you different <laughs> how does your christianity impact the way you think if you the way you think and you the way you behave is just like the world i really question your faith i really question the way if you take jesus seriously or not right 100 percent. because you mentioned the sermon on the mount a while ago all you got to do is go back to sermon the sermon on the mount yeah yeah if you can't read the sermon on the mount and realize what's happening right now is not right not the way of jesus <laughs> you need to keep reading it. Yeah. Keep reading it until it sticks because some for some reason it's not getting into your brain the way it should. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of repentance, I think, um, that uh, Christians in the West need to do, especially those who are supporting this war. You need to repent. <laughs> well, Daniel, I want to I, I want to maybe keep you on like retainer, <laughs> get you back on the show at some point. If we that's something I'm I know we're gonna have other things to talk about. We could go you just started a new podcast, you have some partners and 
if you want to plug that, whatever you want to plug, then people can find your podcast. I'll let you get out of here. Yeah, thanks, uh, Craig. So um, I mentioned um, one book, Ilan Pape, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine. Check that out. There's also a book by Rashid Khalidi, Rashid, R-A-S-H-I-D-K-H-A-L-I-D-I. He's a Palestinian historian at Columbia University. He wrote the book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. So check that out. Craig, I can send you a resource packet I put together of different books, documentaries, videos, podcasts, and so on that people can just open the file and look up. And they can, I provide um, a paragraph description for every documentary film or book, and they can, and also hyperlinks for them to buy the books from Amazon or to stream from YouTube or what have you. So I ask the audience to like do their due diligence, whether it's like reading stuff on theology and the land, whether it's reading about the politics and the history, they like, you need to do your job. You need to do your due diligence, try to understand what's happening there before you say anything about it. And to plug, uh, to have this kind of plug about my own podcast, we just, I just um, launched a podcast with some friends. It's called Across the Divide. And it's a, a collaboration between Palestinian Christians and American Christians and having conversations about faith and social justice in relation to Palestine, Israel, in connection with the church in the U.S. and the West in general. So it's across the divide. It's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and so on. But I guess we can also provide the link in the show notes, um, Craig, as well for that. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Uh, also, I'm going to check out your podcast. I know I heard you talk about it some other, when I heard you on these other podcasts, they hadn't quite launched yet. So I was looking for it, couldn't find it, but now you're saying it's out. So we just launched it like three days ago. Perfect. Uh, the first episode of the podcast, we meet with a Palestinian theologian from Gaza. He was born in Gaza. Currently, he's he's he lives in Bethlehem. He but he is a wonderful theologian, very articulate. Talks about life in Gaza, what it's like, and th- how he thinks about Hamas. And the second episode, can I can I alluded to some of the content here? We, we're basically dealing with. Uh, Christian responses to Hamas and violence and kind of basically unpacking some of the arguments made by Christians, by politicians about just war theory, about kind of the attitudes towards violence and Hamas and kind of responding to them. So it, it's looking like kind of a fun podcast. So I highly recommend people to check it out across the divide. And, uh, you know, and even if they don't want to listen to it, if you just kind of subscribe and follow and just kind of play it on mute just to help us get some uh, some downloads, <laughs> that would be very nice as well. <laughs> No, I think people are going to listen to it because it's 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 an important topic. I mean, it's something, you know, when this this it seems like this stuff gets quiet for a little bit, and then all of a sudden something blows up again, and then we're talking about it again, mm-hmm. like it never ends. And you you mentioned something earlier about violence we get violence, and it just it continues that we've got to get away from that. Figure out a way to get away from that. And just start following the teachings of Christ. I know that's hard to say to. Right. non-Christians, you know, but at the same time, Christians who are f- claiming to follow Jesus, let's start following Jesus and stop supporting this garbage that's going on, this evil, that's absolute evil. And I think you're doing fantastic work, and I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show and speaking with us. I think our, our listeners are going to enjoy this. They've been looking forward to hearing from you. I've been talking. We have a private discussion group on Facebook. Mention to them that you're coming on the show and because it's something that they have questions about because it's they, maybe some of them were stuck like I was in, in, in my own way of thinking. And they're trying to figure out. I had a guy text me, one of my, a really good friend of mine, he texted me the other day. He goes, you got any any ammunition I could share with people as far as what's going on in, in Palestine? And I sent him your episode on Theology on the Raw. 
Mm-hmm. And he listened to it, and he goes, "I wish more people would listen to this guy and, and get a, get a, get an idea of what uh, what's actually going on there." Because it's like I said in the very beginning of the show, there's a lot of confusion. I'm, I'm happy to help. Um, I'm ho- hopefully people would listen. Hopefully people would also check out the resources, follow your podcast and mine, and yeah, do their do their work, put in the work and the time into educating themselves. I'm just going to finish with this: stand for truth, stand for love the way of the cross, stand for justice for the Palestinians, fight for Israelis. If you will find yourself as a pro-Israel, fight for for Israelis, but do that uh, also, and then also fight for Palestinians. You're not, I'm not asking you to be anti-Israel. I'm asking you to be pro-people, pro-justice, pro-Palestinians and pro-Israelis. This is not one either, either or. This is both and. Um, fundamentally, we need to be driven by concern for justice and for mercy. And that's the way you should act as a Christian and also as an American and anyone else, really. And I just kind of encourage everyone, just kind of take this seriously, pursue truth and justice, and and be um, be the change you want to see. Play a role, an active role. You have a lot of privilege and power in the U.S. and freedom. Use that well. Educate people. Educate yourself and advocate for people who have no voice and you know, speak for the oppressed and, and kind of help bring about that reality of goodness and truth that we need for the world today. Yes, sir. Completely agree with you. Well said. Well said. I'm going to let you get out of here and I'm going to go run to work and be maybe I'll maybe I'll bring up this conversation in the break room at work tonight. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Sounds good, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about The Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com.